Welcome to the Cloud Pod, where the forecast is always cloudy. We talk weekly about all things AWS, GCP, and Azure. We are your hosts, Justin, Jonathan, Ryan, and Peter. Episode 123, recorded on, ironically enough, June 23rd, 2021. The Cloud Pod does step in the studio. Good evening, Peter and Jonathan. How's it going? Going well. How are you? I'm doing great. Jonathan apparently is not doing so well. Oh, no, I was, I was just being too polite to, to go first. Oh, no, too be, polite. We're, we're, is we're that Britishness too, of you? We're all being yeah. too accommodating, apparently. I should just talk over you next time. I'm good. I, I just figured maybe you were buying your lottery ticket since we were recording the 123rd episode on the 23rd. Maybe you're like, oh, that's uh, you know, hits the, the reason to buy a lottery ticket right there. Well, uh, Ryan is unfortunately dealing with some issues this evening and was not able to join us. He said he might pop in late, uh, so you know, he, he may appear magically, but he may not. So we'll just continue on like he's not even here because he's not. So first up is a blog post that is taking the cloud world by storm. And that, of course, is Andreessen Horowitz's uh, The Cost of Cloud, A Trillion Dollar Paradox uh, blog post. This was written by a couple of their analysts, Sarah Wang and Martin Casado. And it's been pretty controversial in the space as basically the article uh, talks about the significant platform shift to the cloud. Uh, on the IT industry, and that the you know the impact of hundreds of billions of dollars on IT spend, and it's still very early days in the cloud. Uh, and of course, the shift has driven value as infrastructure is available immediately, exactly the scale needed by the business, and driving efficiencies both in ops and economics. But uh, Andreessen Horowitz contends that as the industry experience with the cloud matures, they see a more complete picture of the cloud lifecycle on a company's economics, and it becomes more evident that while cloud clearly delivers on its promise early in a company's journey. It puts pressure on margins that can outweigh the benefits as a company scales and growth slows down. Uh, as this comes later in a company's life, though, it's difficult to reverse as it's results of years of development focus on features and not infrastructure optimizations. Uh, and they go on to use a couple of examples of this, including CrowdStrike and Zscaler, who adopted a hybrid approach uh, to help recognize savings. Or they point out Dropbox, who you know, in their S1 said they saved $75 million over two years uh, moving to private infrastructure for their storage needs. Uh, you know, A16Z, basically, they went on and modeled uh, the use case for full repatriation of data from cloud into private cloud and basically felt there was a $100 billion market value being lost due to cloud economics in the margins. Uh, and so A16 doesn't recommend just running away from the cloud, of course, because they said, you know, it does have a value to your business, uh, especially in the early days while you're still growing. Uh, but they do have some key things that you should be thinking about, including cloud spend as a KPI, you need to incentivize the right behaviors, optimization, optimization, and, of course, optimization. Uh, thinking about repatriation up front or really being cloud agnostic and incrementally repatriate where it makes sense to in your business model. So this has been a very uh, controversial article this week that uh, everyone is talking about. So we, too, will talk about it here. Oh, before we get into it, what, what, do you, what do you think, what did you see online as being the, uh, the pushback against this exactly? Well, I, I think the big one is Dropbox as an example is a terrible example. <laughs> Dropbox has a very specific, you know, business need, which is to store large amounts of data at very cheap costs. And of course, you know, you know that if you can buy millions of drives at a commodity price and you can negotiate directly with the vendor, you can get those drives for a lot cheaper and potentially run it in your infrastructure in a data center that's predictable and a much less model, which makes sense for a company like Dropbox. So that's probably the biggest controversy I've seen is just using Dropbox as the example um, I didn't see much pushback on CrowdStrike and Zscaler, uh, you know, because those are good use cases, as well as multi-cloud um, as a way to enable your business to be in multiple clouds or regions as, a, as good strategies to be leveraging um, against each other is also probably a pretty good strategy. But, you know, repatriation is sort of an interesting model. Well, I, you know, to be to be fair, we have customers who, are, who have a large footprint in data centers who are currently expanding in the cloud 
for the apps they're running in the data centers while they build out their data centers. And then the plan is to repatriate that. But companies doing that are, um, are not companies who are, you know, buying enterprise hardware with enterprise hardware support and VMware for, uh, and paying VMware licensing for their, uh, virtualization layer and, uh, paying, you know, uh, significant license fees for operating systems, uh, et cetera, and buying EMC or, or other enterprise grade, uh, uh, storage with the features associated with it. These are companies that have invested in, you know, being able to run on commodity hardware. And in that case, I think there is a, a for specific workloads, a compelling, uh, case for either, you know, building and running yourself or building the cloud and repatriating. But I agree a hundred percent that you can't use that one example and then just apply it to all companies and their heterogeneous workloads. And their skill sets. Yeah, well, 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 any cloud provider has any margin, then of course there's money to save by doing it itself at scale. And that's, and that's the, the crux of the matter, isn't it? If this is at scale, this is only the top 50 or top 100 companies that, that would really even factor into this. And I think one of my biggest problems with, with the analysis is it, it sort of assumes that, that you reach this status quo. And that you've done your product development and that you've launched a product and then great, you can, you know exactly what it's going to look like and move it back to the data center. But um, development is always going to continue. You'll always have new features. You'll always have new products, at least if you're a successful company. And, and what they don't really talk about is the, the inability to, to scale down once you move back to a data center. If you have a static workload like Dropbox where we, you, know, you know where you can forecast well in advance what, what the usage is going to look like, great. Dropbox probably will, will never need to scale down. At least it would be fairly disastrous for them if they did. But uh, any other company that has seasonal workloads, th think of TurboTax, for example. I can't imagine that it makes sense for them to move back to a data center and pay for hardware that sits unused for you know nine months out of the year. Well, I've had friends you know, who are CTOs at, at large retail companies and, uh, you know, the, to be on premise, right? Just to cover Black Friday, <laughs> you know, you're paying three or four x capacity that just sits there nine months out of the year, and you know they would come up with creative ways to use that data, you know, that hardware for other things. But really, it was there for Black Friday, and now with the power of the cloud, they don't have to ho hold all that infrastructure in bay. They just scale up when they need it, and they get that benefit. Um, so I think that's that's a very big thing too. I think the other side of this that you know this doesn't take into effect is if you are not able to leverage the cloud native services that are there because you're being uh, worried about repatriation up front or this hybrid world where, you know, you have one of very predictable cost model. When your competitors start disrupting you, <laughs> the difficulties of actually now starting to, to compete again are difficult because you've gotten into this static cost model that you can't change out of. It isn't API driven that, again, is relying on infrastructure people who are expensive and know how to manage storage and, and compute and all these things. And the business is now changing or pivoting. And now I'm stuck with this sunk cost data center. Um, I don't know if that's always the right thing to do. I think there are plays where you get to large enough size, Facebook level, LinkedIn level, um, where, you know, maybe running your own infrastructure is still highly cost effective. But, you know, if you're a, a mid, to, you know, small enterprise size software company doing software as a service, I don't see the benefit of this strategy for you uh, until you get to hundreds of billions of dollars in annual revenue. Yeah. I mean, I guess you could get together with a bunch of other people. Uh, and uh, sort of share a data center, and then you know, if you move back from cloud, then then share the data center space with a bunch of other people. So that, you know, but that's just being in the cloud, right? <laughs> like, exactly. it's, it's, all you're doing is reinventing the cloud over and over again. Yeah, but <laughs> to also be fair, I mean, we talk about that dynamic use of the cloud, but then we look at the real world case of most large companies in the cloud, and their aggregate 
compute and storage is uh, is growing every month on month, year on year. They're making one year, two year, three year, sometimes four or five year commitments of volume to that vendor. Uh, so it's 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 not exactly that they're completely dynamic in in their use because if they were they'd be paying even three times more those those numbers and that's fair and they talk about that in the article too they mentioned how some people don't only make up 80 percent of their committed spend and some people uh, double their committed spend and i'm sure there's there's a sensible break-even point for every company based on their margins as to what what makes sense to commit to based on the risk and and how much you, you burst up and pay market rate for. Yeah. And you're talking about one company being 81% of their cost of goods sold was their Amazon or cloud commitment. And I was just thinking like that's just a not optimized infrastructure. So you're you're basically saying, well, you know, because the dev teams or the operational teams can't optimize this infrastructure properly, we're committing a huge amount of money to these things and so you'd be better off just using a data center where it's a sunk cost and a sunk cost fallacy really in place. Again, I, I think that's why the key thing they said, and one thing I do really agree with this is that you need to focus on optimization early and often, and you need to incentivize that optimization as best you can. You know, put gamification into it, and you know we've done things at prior companies where you know we we challenge the dev teams. You know, the dev team that saves the most money gets uh, you know a spiff or gets money, and you know gets a share part of that that optimization savings, and say you know because you help the business long term. So there's all kinds of ways to incentivize the right behavior. Uh, just a matter of doing it rightly, but again. I think designing for repatriation and then incrementally repatriating is probably not ideal for most companies who just be executing as fast as they can to get onto cloud and get market adoption and growth. Also, that 80% number is a total red herring. That, that number might be a super efficient uh, cloud infrastructure or data center infrastructure that uh, just happens to be the model of their business is that it's infrastructure heavy. And it's a good thing. And if it was a lower percentage, it was be- it would be because they're wasting money in other areas where they don't have to. That number is a total red herring. Yeah, I mean, for sure, it could be a, it could be an AI ML team that's you know spending a lot of money on GPUs. Yeah, <laughs> and so they, you know, it makes sense that they're spending that kind of money because they get faster training, they get faster value. They're selling that value back to their customers at the end of the day and making a good margin on that business. Uh, but yeah, you know, I think that's definitely an area where you know they talk about specialized hardware as a good reason to move to the data center. Well, I don't think GPUs are a good use case because GPUs are changing so fast right now that I don't want to invest you know a hundred million dollars in GPU infrastructure for it to be outdated in a year from now when the next GPU cycle comes out. I'd rather make Amazon eat that money and I'll just take advantage of it and they make it available to me. I have a friend who runs a website. He put some investment into it a number of years ago. It kind of runs itself. He charges a subscription fee to learn foreign languages, and he sends out emails to, to subscribers. He has resources on the page. He maybe he spends an hour on it uh, weekly. All of his costs are cloud costs because it's hosted in AWS. You know, like ninety-five percent of his costs are cloud costs. The other five percent is probably his accountant at the end of the year. So, but but it's effectively passive income for him. That doesn't mean he should move it anywhere else because anywhere else would be no more effective, no more cost-effective at least than, than where it is today. Yeah, I mean, I've had this thought about even the CloudPods website, right? You know, it's it's there for people to go download the podcast episode. Uh, we host it on Amazon, and I host it with several other websites that I run in containers on, on the infrastructure. I could run the same thing on Linode or on DigitalOcean or different areas, but, hey, it's not what I do in my day job. Um, so I like the idea that it's very similar. But, you know, yeah, the, I could optimize it, but what am I really getting at the end of the day? 
you know, the cost of running that those containers for the CloudPod website is a small portion of our overall, you know, business economics of what we do here at the CloudPod. So it just doesn't make sense. It's not an area that I'm going to focus on as an investment area. In fact, I may even go a different direction, make it more expensive in the future to take advantage of things like Fargate or EFS or different things to kind of get away from even having to run EC2 instances at all because now I don't have to manage it. I don't have to manage the security. I don't have to manage patching it. I don't have to manage worrying about any of it. It's just magic that Amazon takes care of for me at the end of the day. And that's really the true value I get out of being on AWS versus DigitalOcean or somebody else. And I love DigitalOcean. <laughs> yeah, but you know, and then, I mean, to be fair, though, when you talk about there's some margin to be had, there, that article mentioned 30%, not gross margin, 30% net income on these services, which uh, if you look back, I think Microsoft uh, antitrust cases, one of the proof points was that one of their products was making 24% net income, which was, which someone had called at the point un-American. So these margins, though, maybe you can't do it as cheaply as Amazon's cost, but it's, with those kind of net income numbers, which is maybe predicting a 70, 80% gross margin, right? 5x, 4x or so, uh, cost, maybe, you know, uh, and, and as open source and other, you know, container orchestration technologies mature, uh, maybe it become, you know, it becomes more and more possible for smaller and smaller companies to repatriate and run at a, at least at a cost that forces those vendors to lower their prices to compete with that alternative and then, you know, benefits that entire industry. And that may be why we've seen things like the moves of Graviton or ARM in general or more yeah. environmentally and cost-effective cost uh, CPUs because I'm sure margin will become much more of an issue in the, in the next 10 years. But no, I did agree. I did agree with the article on, on some things. Yes, it is part of the life cycle. Sure, you could use the cloud to, to do your dev work, but when you, when you have unpredictable workloads and if you do have a static or, you know, relatively inflexible final state, then sure, you know, if it makes sense, then do it. And that can be part of the life cycle of the product. But I, I, I wouldn't lump the entire, you know, $300 billion cloud industry into the same bucket and say it makes sense for everybody. Yeah. I, I wonder too about, you know, you're a company and you're spending all this money and you're on you know, easy two instances. If you took the same investment you're going to make to go take it back to your own data center and you reinvested in, you know, serverless properly uh, and really moving to a more event-driven architecture, would that be a better investment of your time and resources than going back to private cloud where you can't really run serverless in the same way you'd have to run, you know, your K-native or something else? My, my feeling is that a lot of these analysis are based on really bad patterns that aren't cloud-native still. Like, there's a, so many bad patterns out there that just... You know, not taking advantage of serverless, not taking care of advantage of APIs, not taking advantage of multi-region and, and native cloud services, uh, and just running on EC2 and saying, well, you know, EC2 is really expensive. And if that's the only way you're comparing the ROI of your cloud, <laughs> I think that's where your, your mistake number one is. Of course, the other problem is the, the number of locations that we have available to us between GCP, Azure, and AWS, they may be the best data center in the region. There may not be, you know, uh, a good enough colo. Equinix may not have something nearby. You may not be able to get the resources nearby to, to go and rack and stack your stuff or to, to drive there and plug in routers and things when when things break. I mean, you've got, you're paying for hands. You're not just paying for servers and usage and managed services. You're paying for hands to go and do the work for you. And it's, an awful, it's, it's a lot easier to, to pay somebody to do that than to just, you know, staff up and do it yourself. I mean, I guess at the end of the day, it, it comes down to, are you happy with 
your eighty percent margin or seventy five percent margin, or you know, where do you draw the line? What are you what are you comfortable with? Are the shareholders happy? Or are they driving you to to make changes like this? Well, let's move on to uh, our next topic because we've we've beaten this one into the ground. We can talk about that for two hours. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, for sure, and definitely something to talk about over over uh, tasty beverages. I think sometime in the future. Well, uh, next up is Splunk, and Splunk is launching their new Splunk Security Cloud. Uh, this new Splunk Security Cloud is bolstering its data secure security portfolio and furthering its efforts to make all parts of its machine generated data search platform available in the cloud. Uh, they're also announcing this in conjunction with a billion dollar investment by PE firm Silverlake. Uh, Spunk, which is in the middle of a challenging platform shift to the cloud, said it will use the proceeds to fund growth and share buybacks. Uh, Spunk Security Cloud offers value in four key SIM areas, including advanced security analytics, automated security operations, threat intelligence, and an open ecosystem. Uh, and I was thinking about this billion-dollar investment from Silver Lake, and I had to look at the recent acquisitions that they've done. And considering they bought Signal Effects in, in October 2019. Victor Ops in June of 2018 and SignalSense in 2017, which are all relatively well-known companies uh, when they got acquired, you know, none of them are integrated into a unified Splunk platform. I think they're having some integration challenges maybe at the back end, <laughs> which is resulting in them having costs that are out of control that Silver Lake sees as a potential opportunity to either you know, get involved and, and make a lot of money if they can get them to get their integrations right. Um, or potentially eventually take it completely private if they wish to do so. So that's you know that's something to keep an eye on. I'm not sure yet. I'm just me reading the tea leaves. But it, you know, a PE firm coming and investing a bunch of money into you that they're going to then go use on buybacks and to fund growth is never a good thing. <laughs> no. <laughs> but as far as the security cloud stuff goes, I mean, it makes total sense. The data is where the insights are. Anyone who's got data is in a in a immensely valuable position right now to to sell the insights, whether they're security or financial or any any kind. Um, and I kind of wonder if Splunk will also launch other verticals, looking at other other data sets, right? They've always been well known for their SIM module on top of the Splunk on-premise stuff. So you know, spin that out, make it available as its own tool, and then if your ops team decides to move away from Splunk for logging to Elk, your security team doesn't have to go that way. They can still keep using the Splunk security cloud. Like it's a it's a great play. Like it makes a lot of sense. And as well as you know, the SIM has always been well respected in the market for Splunk. And, you know, why not double down on that and, and pivot into more of a security space in that direction? And if this helps them get there, I think it's a great investment for them. And it's a good strategy pivot. Uh, I just worry about that PE stuff on the back end of it. Yeah, that's that's probably not going to be very pretty for a lot of people. And I mean, uh, Scalar was acquired as well. There was Splunk competitor Scalar, also acquired recently by Sentinel One, another security company. So it's it's, it's obviously a, uh, kind of a hot topic. I mean, all the logging as a service vendors, Logly and Logs.io and all these guys, you know, they're all pivoting into security. They're all pivoting into MLAI because that's where the market is. You know, logging is really a commodity at this point. And so how do you differentiate yourself? And that's where you see those acquisitions come up, like Scalar getting bought by Sentinel-1. Um, you see these others. Is that it's all about, you know, basically making a wider footprint into these organizations so you can take more of the pie, more of the pie either in security or in operations. Oh, did Datadog have a SIM yet? I don't know. If, if they did, if they don't, what should it be called? It has to be something kind of canine related, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Bloodhound would be what I would go with. Blood, but there you go. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> you can take your royalty checks to be sent out to me and, you know, to cash <laughs> my home address. Please, thank you. All right, let's move on to great new features in the Amazon world. And first up is another studio. The AWS Stuff Functions Workflow Studio is a low-code visual tool for building state machines. Uh, previously, building workflows on Stuff Functions required you to learn and understand Amazon State Language, or ASL, which if you had to do that, I'm sorry. 
Uh, with a new Workflow Studio, a low-code visual tool that helps you learn step functions through a guided interactive interface and allows you to prototype and build workflows faster. Workflow Studio is great for developers who are new to step functions because it reduces the time to build their first workflow and provides an accelerated learning path for developers learn by doing. And the visual editor is a great start, uh, with much more coming on the roadmap, apparently. This is available in all regions where step functions are available. And so this is actually a low-code solution I can kind of get behind because this is taking a very complicated model and giving it to developers and saying, hey, use a slightly easier way to learn the more complicated way uh, and use both of them if it makes sense for your workload. And you can use step functions at the end of the day, which is awesome. Well, step functions was announced at reInvent 2016, I think, and then it was GA'd December 2016. I believe the, the very following year we met with the step functions team um, and our, 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 our biggest feedback to them was, it's wonderful, but it's just so difficult to use, it's so difficult to integrate into sort of code pipelines. It's so difficult for developers to, to visualize and link different steps together. Uh, we needed this tool years ago. It's, I'm, I'm super happy that they've actually listened and built something. Your memory of 2016 was very good. I just had to go look it up. I'm like, oh, he was right. 2016, December, <sighs> reinvent. That was a, that was a well good done. year. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> yeah, if, you're gonna, if graphical tools are going to work anywhere, it's when you're trying to visualize workflows. So miserable trying to do that without being able to see it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've never seen a, anyone build a build a state machine without drawing it on a board. Mm-hmm. Exactly. <laughs> That's the first, first yeah, thing you yeah. do. You draw it on a yeah. board. Like, why, why didn't they start with the drawing on the board first and then? Yeah, or, or you use those UML markup languages, which is always fun too. <laughs> uh, yeah, you either UML or you whiteboard it and then you turn it into code and hope for the best. Uh, and then it, you want know, to broke though. It was awful to debug, which is nice too because it helps you debug it. You can see where the failure, the logic happened. Uh, and you can make it fly, you know, change on the fly, which is really great. So, well, if you've been uh, thinking about getting into Graviton, and you've heard, you know, how you can save a ton of money, thirty percent on it, it's so much faster than Intel based. You're really into the ARM world. Uh, Amazon has a new challenge for you, and that is the Graviton challenge, uh, which they want you to migrate your application to run AWS Graviton two. Uh, and this is intended for individual developers and small teams, and is based on experiences of customers who have already migrated to Graviton two. And so if you join the challenge, you can earn a T-shirt just by participating and, and tagging the proper hashtag. Uh, or if you do a video plus the hashtag, they'll send you a hoodie, which is the currency of all developers, is hoodies, of course. Uh, so that can, you know, post it on Twitter with a little hashtag, uh, Graviton Challenge, uh, I don't know the exact wording on that, but then you with a little video demoing your thing and you will get a hoodie in the mail. And then uh, in a couple months here in October, uh, the panel of judges will evaluate the content entries and award additional prizes across six categories, uh, and you'll receive a $500 Amazon credit, as well as if you win your category, uh, you'll receive a reInvent 2021 conference pass, flight, and hotel for one company representative, and the winners will have a private meeting with the Graviton2 team. Uh, and those categories are best adoption for enterprise, small and medium business, startups, best no workload adoption, most impactful adoption, and most innovative adop- uh, most innovative adoption. Uh, you can now submit them starting two days ago on June 22nd uh, through August 31st with winners announced on October 1st, 2021. And there's eight steps performed over four days, uh, which you don't have to do consecutively. Uh, and if you get stuck, there's a dedicated Slack team, uh, and you can sign up for emails with helpful tips and guidance. And basically the four days break down to day one, learn and explore, day two, create and plan to start Porton, and day three, debug and optimize, and day four, update infrastructure and start your deployments. <laughs> Not in sequential order. I'll just skip to the winning, please. Thanks. Oh, my God. <laughs> Can you imagine? I, th- I thought the hackathon was rough with just day one. It's good. I wonder why they're not – I wonder why they've done this. They, they haven't done this for other instance types. They didn't do it for FPGAs, which is a shame. They could have done something good good around that. Um, 
Yeah, I mean they're obviously trying to drive adoption for lots of reasons. Uh, I guess the more the more graviton twos they buy, the cheaper they get. Well, I mean, they probably make a much healthier margin on Graviton 2s than they do on Intel chips. Sure, they do. They make them and manufacture them themselves. So, yes, they get cheaper for them, but also they make way more money on every hour you use of them, too. So, yep. Uh, and they're giving you a pen. You know, and Amazon always wants to save you money. So, at the end of the day, they, they see it as we're giving you better performance for less cost, and we're actually making a better margin. It's a win 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 for them <laughs> and how they see it, too. And so, encouraging you to do this is a big deal. And yeah, and they and they that. they had a bit of bad PR around Oracle uh, offering a better ARM freebie than than they did as well. So it's kind of hoping. Yeah, that but it, it's still tied to the you know the free the free period for Graviton still ends in end of December. So I mean, I, how much noise is in the market right now about the free tier of Amazon and how bad that is? I I'd be kind of shocked not to see Amazon do something this year. But I thought said that last year too, and it didn't change. So is is it a lot of noise, or is it just a lot of noise from just a few people? I don't know. It's, yeah, it's it might be to, a lot of noise from just a few people. Exactly. It's a, it's a lot of noise from people who don't want to spend any money. Yeah, it's not the people <laughs> now, they care too much about. <laughs> yeah, as an Amazon yeah. shareholder, I'm not sure I care too much about those people. <laughs> <laughs> I think just I, I think it's you know enough of a, a nuisance that they may do something, but maybe it's not. We'll see. Well, a nuisance that has plagued me for years, if you're doing KMS encryption, is now finally solved. The AWS Key Manager Service is introducing multi-region keys, a new capability that lets you replicate keys from one region into another. Multi-region keys are designed to simplify management of client-side encryption where your, when your encrypted data has to be copied to other regions for DR or is replicated in Amazon DynamoDB global tables. Uh, at the inception, KMS keys have always been strictly isolated to a single AWS region for each implementation with no sharing of keys, policies, or audit information across other regions. Uh, and region isolation, of course, is great for security standards as well as for data residency, but not so great when you're trying to do DR. <laughs> However, uh, you know, not being able to share those keys is may, you know, it results in you doing all kinds of weird gymnastics. In fact, Amazon services that use KMS uh, for server-side encryption actually end up re-encrypting your data in the other region just to get around this problem. And so using client-side encryption, that becomes very problematic and adds additional latency if you're trying to re-encrypt data yourself. So the multi-region key makes the KMS ciphertext portable across regions, and multi-region keys are a set of interoperable KMS keys that have the same key ID and key material, and they can be replicated to different regions with the same partition. Uh, symmetric multi-region keys is one option, allowing you to encrypt data in one region and decrypt it in a different region. Or you can do asymmetric multi-region keys, which allow you to encrypt, decrypt, sign, and verify messages in multiple regions uh, that have that key available to them. Uh, Multi-region keys are supported in the KMS console, the AWS KMS API, AWS Encryption SDK, the Amazon DynamoDB encryption client, and the Amazon S3 encryption client today. Uh, and Am AWS services will allow you to configure the multi-region key for server-side encryption in case you want the same key to protect data in the server-side as well as in the client-side encryption, which is a really great use case that that enables as well, where now you can use Amazon native services and your own products and access the same data without having to transform the data at all. Yeah. I would agree with your excitement about this, and I think I could speak for probably a hundred Foghorn customers that they would agree as well. What a pain in the butt it is to deal with multiple different oh, keys yeah. in different regions for DR. Do you know if KMS on Outpost is supported? I know I know volumes on, on Outpost are encrypted with KMS, but I'm not sure if KMS is supported as a service natively on Outpost. I mean, that would be the seemingly the next best step. You know, I I don't know about KMS and Outposts because I haven't I haven't used it, um, but I assume it's not probably supported yet. I don't know. That would be my bet. You kind of think you get in the hardware, which is like somewhat separate from the local region, but it seems to without the local region operating, that maybe uh, 
maybe a bit of a fallacy, may fall over, not do quite what you want. I'm sure it's something that you know people who want it will not start asking for it, and it might come to it eventually. But I, I don't think for this initial release, I don't think it's part of the story. Yeah. So maybe maybe we could, they will reduce the cost of KMS now if uh, they don't have to do you know, double encryption for replicated objects and things like that. Definitely starts to kind of remove some of the big drivers for having the HSM. Uh, and, you know, the KMS just keeps getting better and better in yeah. this use case. Yeah, I think some of our some of our uh, sort of HA and DR strategies relied on having two separate sets of keys. So it's going to simplify things. Yeah, yeah, everything. I mean, everything from uh, from compute time to to KMS costs and data transfer. It's awesome. I say that's the announcement of the week. Yeah, <laughs> if we had that. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yeah, of the year, I would say. Uh, I mean, year is pretty bold. I mean, I'm sure there's something else that was cool announced. Year. All right, well, we'll go with it. Uh, well, let's move on to the next announcement. See if it's a contender for the next best announcement of the year. Uh, CloudFormation and, of course, CDK provide you with a scalable and consistent provisioning of AWS resources. Uh, and customers have been asking for similar consistency and scalability when provisioning resources from APN partners, third-party vendors, and open-source technologies, regardless of whether they're using CloudFormation templates or have adopted the CDK. Which I can say that, you know, having bought many services that have to then be run on my own AWS account, I always ask for this question. Like, do you have CloudFormation or Terraform for it? Because <laughs> if you don't, I don't want to write it for you, and I'm not doing your job. And I'm paying you as the vendor. Uh, but to address this concern, they're announcing the public registry of CloudFormation of providing a searchable collection of extensions or resource types or modules published by AWS partners and third parties and developer community. Those will make it easier to discover and provision these extensions in your CloudFormation templates and CDK applications in the same manner you use AWS-provided resources and using extensions you no longer need to create and maintain custom provisioning logic for third-party vendors, as well as you can use a single infrastructure's code tool, CloudFormation, to provision and manage AWS and third-party resources, further simplifying the infra-provisioning process. At launch, there are over 35 extensions available to you today uh, from vendors such as MongoDB, Datadog, Aqua Security, Spot by NetApp, JFrog, Checkpoint, Gremlin, and many more. And to publish your own extension, you must be a verified AWS Marketplace seller or GitHub and Bitbucket user and extensions are validated against the best practices uh, before they get published into the marketplace. So this is available to you now. Uh, so this is really nice. It's just like Terraform modules, but for CloudFormation, where you know they do all the heavy lifting of setting up something like MongoDB replication and clustering. And I think this is pretty nice too. Something people have been asking for for a very long time. Yeah, but you know, so CloudFormation extensions are usually driven on the back end by lambdas or or some processing. Is this public registry going to store that code? Or are those vendors actually offering the back end of those extensions as a service and they're just offering um, the CloudFormation chunk in the in the registry? I mean, they, these are very similar to quick starts. So I, I think the logic has to come with the code. So when you, ex you enable the extension in your system, I think it brings over the code that does kind of those things for you. But uh, maybe so it can... So you run your own lambdas and you... Yeah, I think that's how it works. That, you, yeah. yeah. These the extensions are kind of cool. Uh, the whole public registry for uh, templates is always interesting because as you increase the functionality of that template for all use cases, you tend to build something that ends up overly complex and difficult to maintain for anyone who's using 20% of those features. Uh, and by the time you're done maintaining it, you kind of wish you just wrote it from scratch yourself. But I always love them, even if you don't use them in production, as a, a great uh a great example of how to get started, understand what's going on, and then go ahead and rip, you know, 
look at the pieces you need and, and build something for yourself. Yeah. I mean, you had similar complexities with Terraform modules. You don't always know what those are doing either. Exact same. Um, yeah, but it's interesting. I was looking at the JFrog one, for instance, because, uh, you know, I know Ryan has a lot of JFrog love right now. But, uh, you know, and so I was looking at kind of the modules they actually built out. And so they, you know, they give you the option to do a new VPC or use an existing VPC. And then they give you EC2 instance capabilities, multi-AZ setups and bastions and things like that. So they, they definitely have some opinionated pieces of it, but it does look like they're trying to be flexible enough that it can fit inside your existing infrastructure or set up a brand new infrastructure altogether for this use case, um, which is nice. And, I, you know, looking at some of the other ones, they seem to have similar models where they're, you know, they're trying to kind of fit both worlds where, you know, you have nothing versus you have something, and how do I fit into those different spaces as best appropriate? I thought there was a public registry. I thought it was called GitHub and, and Google. So. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, it was. <laughs> so, you know, okay. I don't see the huge value add right here. Yeah, my comments extend to the other, you know, the Terraform module registries, Chef's Supermarket, like all of these uh, tools that, try to be everything for everybody. They work and they're a great start, but oftentimes they cause more problems than they solve. Yeah, I don't know if you've ever seen the the um, the Terraform AWS VPC module, which is open source on GitHub. It's absolutely massive. I mean, it, it must have hundreds of, of inputs for every possible combination of uh, VPCs that, that you may, po- may possibly want. And every time there's a new feature added to something, it gets a little bit bigger. It's enormous. And most people use what, like five percent of it, maybe. But the fact that it exists, I love because <laughs> having written CloudFormation for VPCs before, uh, it was awful. And so I'll take the Terraform module where I can just give you parameters and you figure out the magic behind the scenes. I'll take that every day of the week. <laughs> so I love that VPC yeah. uh, Terraform module. The fact that it's only open to to partners is kind of annoying. I, I kind of wish. But no, it's, it's not just partners. It, you know, if you want to sell it, I think, or have it available through a marketplace offering, you have to be a marketplace user, but. But it does, you know, if you're just a GitHub or a Bitbucket user, you can also sign up for this as well. And ah, you just have to go through the validation steps and go through the, the best practices and the security scans, and then you can make it public available as well, tied ah, to Jay Baker. So I'm, I'm if you have a module that. you want to write for CloudFormation, because I know much you love them, uh, you could do so and put it out there, and maybe people would download it and use it and give you Ooh. GitHub issues to then complain about. Excellent. <laughs> not to mention that the barriers to becoming a marketplace seller are not huge. Like, it's... It's a very fair process. It's not overly burdensome. I mean, do, do they require Duns and Bradstreet number? Because that's like that's the barrier to entry to get to an Apple developer account to actually like publish something in the App Store. And I'm like, I don't have a DMB. Why would I ever have applied for one of those? <laughs> like, it's such a weird <laughs> Apple thing they always wanted. So hopefully it's not that level. But uh, I don't think that is a requirement. That's good. We're a, we're a marketplace seller, and I don't remember that being a problem. Hey everyone, Jonathan here. I just wanted to take a minute to thank the cloud consulting gurus at Foghorn for helping make the cloud pod possible. These folks truly get it. Cloud consulting experts since 2008, they are premier tier partners with AWS, Google Cloud Platform Silver, and Microsoft Azure partners. From multi-cloud to containers to moving full production workloads to the cloud under the tightest compliance, Foghorn's team of full-stack cloud engineers have been there, done that, gotten the t-shirt, and are ready to share their experience with you. If you're in the market for some talent to supplement your team, visit www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. www.fogops.io slash the cloud pod. Foghorn, the promise of cloud delivered. Let's move on to GCP. Uh, Google has, first up next week, is announcing quantum computing, or maybe they're not announcing quantum computing. I don't know. But this is the Ionic uh, processor, the quantum processor. 
is now available to you via the Google Cloud Marketplace. And developers, researchers, and enterprises alike can now access IonQ's high-fidelity 11-qubit system via Google Cloud in just a few clicks. Uh, this now brings all three cloud vendors now offering you a Ionic-based uh, solution, including AWS Bracket, Azure Quantum, and now Google Cloud via the Marketplace. I mean, I wish I had a use case. <laughs> I just don't know what to do I with know. it. I know. Like, if I had spare time, this is what I'd be spending my time doing. Understanding what awesome problems we could solve with these tools. I, I honestly think that the the first biggest problem, which which will be capitalized on, will be things like database search. Those those types of um, those types of queries will be the the easiest and probably the the uh, the most impactful when they integrate, you know, partly quantum systems with with sort of traditional data stores. And but Google being the uh, the owner of you know an enormous amount of data would probably. Eat that up. I, I always figured the first use case was going to be cyber war. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> as, they, as all the government agencies start breaking encryption all over the place. Yeah. So that, was, that was my assumption. It would be the first real practical use case. And then everyone would switch to quantum to then do encryption to you know, have quantum-proof encryption capabilities. So, but, you know, we'll see. Oh, I like your idea much better, Jonathan. So we'll go with your yeah, your, uh, yeah. your vision. I have my rose collector. Well, well, Google uh, continues to try to be a thought leader in the migration space with a new simple framework for plotting your cloud migration. They're calling Up or Out. Uh, this new white paper will give, basically distills the conversations they've had with many of the CIOs, CTOs, and other technical staff into several frameworks that can help cut through the hype and the technical complexity to help devise a strategy that empowers both the business and IT and the new framework is called Up or Out, which basically provides you three paths to get to the cloud. Re-architect, or go up. Transform, uh, to become cloud native. Or go out, uh, which is migrate uh, to the Google Cloud. So that's available to you now. <laughs> yeah, this when was read, called, it, 10 years ago, it was called Workload Classification. When I read the article, like, all I could think of was, uh, you know, that some data center telling their clients that, you know, you don't have to stay here, but you don't have to move to cloud, but you can't stay here. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I like the idea of making you, a little bit more clear what these migration strategies are and a little bit more practical guidance. But I don't know that we need new frameworks. I think we just need to fill in the blanks of the existing frameworks because like lift and shift and move and improve and all these things, those are all well-defined patterns that just need more, a little bit more data, I think, at the end of the day. But, you know, Google wants to be a thought leader, so they're just going to reinvent the wheel over and over again as much as they can. Exactly. It is kind of interesting, though. Their little chart showing migrate being out to the right or re-architect to serverless, et cetera, being up. Um, you know, we've always done migrations. We've always done transformations by first going out, so migrating, and then going up, migrating to cloud native mm-hmm. to get that out and up. And uh, with containers, I think there's this opportunity now to go up, then out, which is kind of cool too, which is a totally different paradigm to migration, which I'm excited about. Yeah, for sure. It's a weird choice of name though, because up, up or out usually refers to um, employment. Yeah, like yeah, you know, you, it's you, you, you not positive. Yeah, exactly. It's I, not you know, positive. You, yeah, usually, usually reach reach a certain level by by within a certain time. Otherwise, you know, otherwise you you leave. It's 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 a weird uh, weird choice yeah, of a weird choice. term. But yeah. maybe, but maybe, maybe that's why they choose it. I mean, we have lift and shift. We have up, up or out. Uh, maybe maybe they're targeting these little catchphrases to to different sets of people. Helps them remember or, or, you know, get some buzz out there in the market. We're talking about it on a podcast, for goodness sakes. So there you go. Shows you marketing works. I'm just going to I'm just gonna edit this section out just out of principle. Okay. <laughs> well, after the uh, surprise hit of column-level security, BigQuery is now here to give you row-level security, which gives customers a way to control access to subsets of data in the same table for different groups of users. 
Low-level security extends the principles of least privilege access and enables fine-grained access control policies in BigQuery tables. And BigQuery now supports access controls at the project, dataset table, and column level in addition to the row. Adding RLS to the portfolio of access controls now enables customers to filter and define access based on qualifying user conditions. That's a that's very nice. Uh, I was you know I was surprised they didn't actually talk about more use cases for how this could be you know used because this can solve a multi-tenant problem. This can solve yeah. uh, all kinds of different use cases about you know hey I have this big massive table that I can now optimize and query and and do the right things to, but then I can limit the data to tenant or the data to specific needs. Uh, as well as you know, protect the data from a column basis on a PII basis. So there's there's a lot of flexibility with BigQuery really becoming kind of the big the big solution for a lot of big problems in the SaaS space in particular. I thought you could have kind of already do that with with protected views. You know, you you give people permission to to use a view, and the view has built into it the conditions. Yeah, but now I'm writing a view for every customer that I have to now update, and I have to manage it, and I have to do all this stuff. I mean, that's effectively what this is, though, isn't it? It's just a it's just a different it's just a fancy word for a view. Yeah, I mean, in some ways. Anyway. But you know, again, it's it's tied to my user versus tied to I called the right view. So now I don't have to. Now I don't need to know what the view is to call. I just call the table I always call, and now based on permissions, I have what I need. Yeah, right. And I'm sure I'm sure that table exists on the back end. And and when you when you give you your permission, it's just the view is now just linked to the other table that has your permissions in it. So it's like, <laughs> hey, 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 how the sausage is made doesn't matter to me. At the end of the day, I just went to you know my user table and I queried and I got what I needed versus yeah. As you know, I needed the tenant ID you know user table. <laughs> Well, for those of you who've been uh, struggling trying to get HTTP2 uh, WebSockets working, uh, Google's here to bring you HTTP3, <laughs> and they will get your content there quick with the cloud CDN and load balancing. Uh, Google is, of course, bringing support for HTTP3 to all Google Cloud customers using cloud CDN and the HTTPS load balancing. And with HTTP3 support, you will see real-world improvements to your streaming video, image serving, and API scaling behind their global infrastructure without having to change your application. HTTP3 is the next-generation internet protocol and as well on top of Quick, a protocol Google developed and contributed to the IETF. Oh, how nice of you, Google. Thank uh, you. HTTP3 and Quick address challenges with HTTP2 around head-of-line blocking, security, and reliability over unreliable connections. And Google's Quick implementation will be phased out at the end of 21 in favor of the IETF Quick standard. Clients that don't support HTTP3 will still be able to negotiate HTTP2 or, heaven forbid, HTTP 1.1 protocols. And Google is enabling this by default for all of your cloud CDN and HTTP slow bouncing needs, meaning that all of a sudden you're going to have some really weird support cases sometime in the next few months. Did Google's development of their standard have uh, any correlation to YouTube? I'm sure it had something to do with it. <laughs> had to, right? Yeah, how do we make YouTube more reliable? Well, we redesigned yeah. the HTTP protocol to support unreliable connections and streaming properly. Yeah, I think yeah. a lot of the value of Quick though is around really low latency establishment of connections. Instead of having to wait for that whole round trip for the TCP handshake before you can even send the request, Quick does like a zero round trip um, handshake when you first send the the, um, the request, and so it effectively sort of shave off that. 15 milliseconds or five milliseconds of, of connection time. It's it's gonna be it's gonna be really useful. It's gonna be. A, I mean, it makes me want to work at Google because, you know, I'm too busy trying to like optimize basic queries for applications. Still, you know, I'm not optimizing at the TCP/IP level in my HTTP GET request for TLS handshake. Like, I, like these are problems that I just wish I would have to deal with. Because you've already because all the other problems are gone. It's like this is all that's left. Yeah, because all the other problems are gone. Like. I mean, like, I, I just go work at Google just for this fact that I don't have to worry about, you know, those other basic problems. I'll just worry about, you know, TCP handshakes and how fast <laughs> they are and, you know, optimizing, you know, tens of milliseconds per request. Just, well, uh, it's a great problem to have for well, somebody. Maybe. But the other, I think the, the second best thing is that there is no insecure 
um, data transfer for HTTP three. There's no no there's no sort of no option for no SSL. Everything is encrypted, which yeah, is which quite is, a huge step know, in the that right is direction. nice. That's how everything should have been. Yeah, and if only that had happened, you know, five or six years earlier in HTTP two, <laughs> like we could have been in a much different place as a as a society and technology. Uh, but unfortunately, we're not there. Yep. If only it, if only the originators of TCP/IP would have imagined two companies being on the same network, this all would have been solved. <laughs> right. Well, or that you know we'd have to you know design a whole IP range because there'd be too many devices for IPv4, and we'd need a whole new MAC address based <laughs> IP scheme. Like there's so many things if they just thought a little bit further along than you know a desktop or a huge server room in the back room that has one IP address. Yeah, I wonder if you could. Wonder if you could trace back, like exactly how many years ago was it when people realized that every light bulb in the world was going to have a MAC address? <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, such a weird thing. Well, if you were in the manufacturing space uh, and you are doing a lot of visual inspection as part of your QA process, uh, Google is giving you a new tool, the Visual Inspection AI solution, uh, which helps manufacturers more accurately and cost-effectively perform production quality inspections purpose-built for the industry with their best AI and computer vision technology to solve the challenges at scale. Manufacturing processes typically include one or more steps where the product is visually inspected for defects, and this is typically highly manual and can be time-consuming and still result in high defect rates. And over the years, uh, rule-based visual inspection machines have emerged, but they all have drawbacks, including manual inspection requirements, traditional inspection machinery needs to be programmed, and existing machine vision-based inspection can only detect a handful of defects at a time. Uh, so overall, this solution basically gives you automated machine learning AI to look at things. And they actually have a really great video in the blog post where they show a, a you know, sort of a video card or some type of uh, processing chip that basically crosses over uh, and shows the defects in the card as it goes through the system. So pretty neat demo. Uh, this is also maybe something familiar to people who recently heard about Lookout for AWS, which is a similar technology from AWS. Yeah, I was going to I was going to poke fun exactly the same way and say AWS launched the same thing basically beginning of December last year. And so, if anyone cares for my little story about that, you can go back go back and check out the previous episode. <laughs> yeah, I, I just keep thinking about the uh, uh, what people are going to use this for, like when they have one too many at the company Christmas party, picturing the '80s movies. And people's use of the fax machines, or the, uh, not the fax machines, but the copy machines. Like, what are you going to do with this at the Christmas party? <laughs> That's funny. That's fu- I, I think about uh, you know the, the Jelly Belly factory here in uh, in East Bay. Been there a few times, and they they have the you know you can do a, do a tour of the factory, and they have people standing there, actual people standing there looking at jelly beans coming off a production line, picking out the the misshapen ones and things that the machines don't catch themselves. I don't know. It's like putting everybody out of a job with things like this. <laughs> yeah, totally. It's a interesting space. I I can't wait to see now uh, Azure come out with their Azure Vision <laughs> to also do a similar use case. Because this, this time next year, maybe. Or <laughs> yeah, about this time next year, probably. Lots to do it. For listeners of the Cloud Pod, you know that I have no love for Microsoft Active Directory, which is why I'm excited to tell you about the leading cloud directory platform, Jump Cloud. JumpCloud makes it easy to solve today's IT challenges by unifying device and user management through a single pane of glass, enabling you to securely manage your users and devices and perform common tasks like onboarding and offboarding remote workers. With JumpCloud, you no longer need to implement an on-premise Active Directory infrastructure or additional tooling to scope a user's access, and you can ensure that the user is coming from trusted devices and networks. 
Enabling Jump Cloud Zero Trust solutions improves the security and compliance of your network, ensuring users have access only to the services they need when they need them. To start your organization's move to a modern, secure hybrid work model, try Jump Cloud for free today at cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. That's cloud.jumpcloud.com slash the cloudpod. Moving on to Azure, the public preview of the default rule set 2.0 for Azure Web Application Firewall is now available. Uh, this preview release is for customers using the Azure front door service, or well, actually only the premium front door service. So you need the premium front door to be able to use this, but this is a default set of rules uh, empowered by the Microsoft Threat Intelligence capabilities, which gives you increased coverage and patches for specific vulnerabilities. And the DRS 2.0 includes the latest changes, uh, including the addition of anomaly scoring so that you can still let through anomalous traffic, but at a scored level uh, to then take action at your application level. Uh, so this is an interesting uh, use case. I don't know why it's a premium service only. Uh, I think it's kind of a bummer. But uh, hopefully when it goes pro- uh, general available, this will be available to all Azure front door customers, not just the premium ones. Yeah, wouldn't it be nice, though, if you could run both rule sets and have it report on on uh, this event would have been picked up by rule set number one, but not number two. A way to do kind of like blue-green testing or at least some kind of testing in parallel maybe so you can compare changes to rule sets before you put them into production. That would be really cool, actually. I, I hadn't even thought about that use case, but it would be nice to compare one way or the other and see if this rule is going to be you know, more restrictive, less restrictive. Um, yeah, I actually wish I had that for Amazon WAF, too, because there's some limitations to how WAF works. Well, next up is uh, Azure is generally making it generally available the Azure FX series uh, virtual machines in three regions. The FX series VMs are based on the second generation Intel Xeon scalable processor, featuring a high-performing CPU clock speed per single core up to 4 gigahertz and, and 21 gigabytes of memory per vCPU and local temporary SSD disk, available to you in West US 2, West Europe, and Japan East regions. I mean, I, I really like the FX TV series, you know, TV network, but th- this one seems like a low ratings hit for me, but I don't know about you guys. Yeah. It's hard to get excited when once you get virtualized and once you're in the cloud, it's like all I really want to talk about is MIPS. I don't really want to talk about the processor anymore. I mean, it's, it's helpful in some use cases where, you know, you're trying to upgrade something or you need just a little more oomph. But when, you know, really we've pretty much capped off most gigahertz in the 2.4 to 4 gigahertz range. And even 4 gigahertz is typically a burst speed. It's not a consistent 4 gigahertz because the chips will melt to the ground. <laughs> so yeah. it's, you know, it's a bit of a weird uh, thing. You know, we kind of reached some level of inability to go faster than that, at least on current uh, chip architectures. This is a Microsoft problem though, isn't it? I- the uh, single core performance, it becomes very critical for things like SQL Server. Yes. Yeah. I, I mean, some SQL Server queries, you can be, you can definitely split across cores, but uh, the main thread of SQL Server runs on a single core, so that is problematic for them. <laughs> but what would we do without letter X? Like, the letter X makes everything cool. We've got these FX CPUs, got X-Wing fighters, the X-Files, like... <laughs> yes. Ooh, the X-Files. <laughs> Planet X. Planet X, oh, yeah, Planet Chemical X, X. I don't know. Professor X. Yeah. Lots of things. <laughs> X Racer. Well, there's no X, sadly, in this next announcement. But uh, Azure is announcing NFS 3.0 support uh, for Azure Blob Storage is now joined available, enabling hundreds of enterprise customers from various industries such as manufacturing, media, life sciences, financial services, and automotive having braces feature during the preview. The customers use NFS 3.0 for a variety of workloads, including HPC, analytics, and backups. And they gave you a handy little video that you can watch that get, walks you through a demo and all the amazingness of NFS 3.0 on top of Azure Blob. 1995, NFS version 3. 
has been around for 25 years, 26 years. <laughs> I mean, Microsoft just you know put their head in the sand about all things uh, you know NFS because they had SIFs. They're like SIFs and Samba are the way to go. And you know, but this is blobs. Great. To be fair, this is blob storage, right? This is not. Yeah, this is a, this is an NFS interface to blob storage, which is kind of yeah. You know, so it's so, like a file gateway type capability. Yeah. You know, they they still don't support NFS v4 though because NFS v4 has been no around. way. For just about as long as uh, NFS 3.0 have been around, in my opinion. Yeah, you'd think if you were gonna, if you were ever gonna leapfrog a standard, it would be the one that was invented in 1995. You would, you would hope. Next up from Azure, you know, we support load balancing. <laughs> There's been a lot of really like weird legacy announcements from Azure lately, but uh, well, that is it for new news this week. Uh, Peter, do you want to take us to the lightning round? Uh, which you know, my, my, uh, sorry. Matthew, who you sent last week, did a great job filling in for you and awarded the point to you. Uh, I'm not allowed to tell you why you won the point other than he said you had to listen to the episode to find out. So I can tell you you won the point handedly, uh, which I thought was funny. But uh, you know, we, we did have some good fun with the process. Well, I'm just happy I'm on the board. Maybe yeah, if I, mean, I have a chance of winning if I don't show up very often. Yeah, you just send Matt every week. You know, yeah. That's, that's, that's one option. Awesome. Well, excited to be back. Let's start with Azure Blob Index tags are now generally available. Who doesn't love to tag their blobs? Some sort of alliteration there that I liked, even though it didn't make any sense. <laughs> uh, more GA announcements. Cross-region restore of SQL SAP HANA running in Azure VMs. It's a weird headline. SQL or SAP HANA or SQL for SAP HANA? Like, it doesn't, it doesn't make a lot of sense. Who would have thought wanting to restore a copy of something in, in a different region for DR? <laughs> would be a feature that you would announce in a blog post? How novel. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. We released backup. In 1995, and today we're announcing Restore. <laughs> yeah. Uh, see, Peter's going for the point again, and he's, and he's here. I'm not sure we can. <laughs> uh, Amazon Lex announces support for multi-valued slots. Peter, Peter, Lex isn't a slut. Please don't <gasps> her like that. Google Cloud SQL extends Postgres 9.6 version support beyond end of life. Google will continue to show you that, you know, upgrading is for chumps. <laughs> just we'll just keep supporting the old stuff and if you give us your money, we'll just keep supporting it for you because we have an army of engineers who can just code shit for you. Thanks. Back from the dead, they should call it zombie postgres. <laughs> yes. Postgres. I picture Google Cloud SQL and Postgres both uh, making a vase in pottery class together. What a twist what a what a twist of fate though. Google Google not killing something, but actually keeping it going beyond its own death. That's, uh, know, that's very, weird, very unusual weird. for Google. There must have been a lot of money behind this. Yeah, one customer was like, we are not moving to, from 9.6 <laughs> for two years, and you need to support this. <laughs> it's no, In all honesty, this is like a huge value add of managed services. A managed service provider with the capability and the, and the power, you know, the engineering um, grit to go ahead and say, we'll stand behind it for longer than end of life and help you because we know you're going to have a hard time um, getting off of this technology. That's a real value add for going with a, a managed service. For people with money. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. People yeah. with no money get uh, free arm at Oracle free, and that's all they get. Free to you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazon Aurora Serverless V1 supports fast database cloning. I mean, I, I 
Why are we calling it V1? Like, is V2 out? I didn't think V2 was out yet. It's like introducing your wife, who's your first wife, as your first wife, even though right. you're still married. <laughs> That's yeah. funny. That doesn't, that doesn't end well. <laughs> That's funny. My, my, uh, my dad introduces my wife as my American wife. And so the, the, long, <laughs> the long running joke is, well, <laughs> where are the others? <laughs> I, guess, I guess I reinvent the announced serverless V2 with 90% cost savings. I, I just, no one's using serverless Aurora, I think, is the problem. I mean, I'd actually use serverless Aurora, but it doesn't support MySQL 8 yet. And that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> so until it supports MySQL 8, I can't really use it. Yeah. Switch to Google. All my MySQL databases are at least 8.0 or newer. <laughs> Azure Key Vault Managed HSM is now generally available. Ooh, I bet not. <laughs> Amazon Key Spaces for Apache Cassandra now helps you monitor and improve application read-write performance and throughput by using new Amazon CloudWatch metrics. I always wonder when they say improve application read-write performance. You mean you put it on a graph so that improved it for me? Because pretty sure putting it on the graph didn't make it any better. just told me it was broken. Yeah, tells you how bad it is to begin with. Well, the theory I would say, I would argue, would be that in order to improve something, you must first monitor it so you can figure out what's wrong and allow you to improve it. I mean, if you have customers, they'll tell you. Let me tell you. <laughs> it's slow. That's all you need to know. <laughs> AWS announces a new shell for F1 instances with increased FPGA resources and data transfer speeds. I, mean, I thought there was like a legal like specification for F1 shells. Like I didn't think you could. I thought they'd all be kind of standardized and you know one type of car. <laughs> and segue into the Ferrari. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's all I could think of. Like F1, 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 F1 for help. <laughs> yeah, or that. Oh my God, remember those yeah. days? Oh yeah. Still works. It, most apps it does on Windows. It's yeah. awesome. That in F10 was often. You remember the boss key? <laughs> yeah. Where if you're playing a video game and you hit F10, and it freezes the game and pops up a fake Excel spreadsheet <laughs> <laughs> when the boss is coming by. <laughs> uh, anyway, last but not least, speaking of F1, Ferrari selects AWS as its official cloud provider to power innovation on the road and track. See, Ferrari's, you know, telling these shells are the best, and they now partner with Amazon to get those great shells on their F1 vehicles. They're not supposed to leave the cars in the cloud. They're supposed to leave them in the dust. Ooh. Nice. That's spectacular. That's a winner. Yes. I'm the last one. <laughs> a winner today, oh, my or a winner a different day? This is the question. You give it and you take it away. <laughs> no, that was spectacular. That might be my favorite one of the year. Ooh. Let me say. Ooh. Okay. Wow. All right. That's impressive. Came from nowhere. Came from nowhere. Yeah, you were, I know, it was like body blow, body blow, body blow. And then <laughs> last minute of the 12th round, haymaker. Haymaker right to the chin. It went down hard. Yeah. Uh, I thought I had you with the, you know, Lex, you ignorant slot. <laughs> yeah, well, you know, you were going to win for that, but I was going to claim that you had won for the Azure blog comment just so that I didn't get in trouble. In nice. social media. <laughs> but, uh, there you go. There you go. Well, things are coming up again here in the cloud world. Uh, Google has the Security Summit on July 20th, which you can go sign up for or watch the replay of on July 21st. And the Retail and Consumer Goods Summit is on July 27th or the replay on July 28th. So you don't have to actually wake up early to join any of these summits. Uh, they're all available to you soon from Google Cloud. The State of FinOps update is going to be in July 8th, uh, and you can go sign up for that if you're part of the FinOps Foundation. 
do check that out. Friend of the show has uh, is super excited to get, hopefully get some of you guys to come join and listen in on the FinOps update. And then, of course, we have Reinforce in the heat of summer in August from Houston, Texas. Uh, and then reInvent uh, registration is open officially. I have registered. I have booked my hotel. I have booked my airfare. I am ready to go to reInvent November 29th through December 3rd. Uh, awesome. As, Per schedule, so looking forward to that. I will not be making reinforce though. I can't. I can't do the heat. I'm not doing it. Sorry. The barbecue is not worth the. Uh... I haven't booked anything, but I'm absolutely in for uh, reinvent. At the risk of alienating our Houston listeners, I'm not sure Houston has the best barbecue in Texas, anyways. But you know, better than Vegas. Someone right. We let someone, right. <laughs> we let someone well, definitely better than Vegas. But Vegas has all because of other amazing food, so it's fine. And that is it. Another fantastic week here in the cloud, guys. Have a great weekend and next week. Awesome. See you next week. And that is the week in the cloud. We'd like to thank our sponsors, Foghorn Consulting and Jump Cloud. Check out our website, the home of the Cloud Pod, where you can join our newsletter, Slack team, and send feedback or ask questions at thecloudpod.net or tweet us with the hashtag thecloudpod. 